Hello, and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension for ROI Show 481. Our guest for today is Dr. Allison Beach, Professor of Medieval History at the University of St. Andrews, and we're going to be talking about her book, Women as Scribes, Book Production and Monastic Reform in 12th Century Bavaria. The history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. Rick, start us off. Allison, why did you uh, study things going on in Bavaria? What took you there? <laughs> um, good evidence. So it was really the... It was very easy for me to get access to a very large number of 12th century books at the State Library in Munich. And uh, it it just turned out that that they were well cataloged and some of them were already, some female scribes were already identified. So I had a good place to start. So it was really uh, an accident in a way of survival and of cataloging. It just made it, it was a very low risk way for me to begin this project. Um, I knew I could find something there. So, and then I just stayed in Bavaria because there was a lot of evidence, and it was interesting. Okay. Brett. So, forgive me in advance if the, the evidence doesn't exist to answer this question. Um, when you look at the materials we know are produced by female scribes, are there any trends that set them apart or do we just not have the data to answer those kinds of questions? You mean in terms of their script? Is there something? Well, in terms of what uh, what their what books they're producing. There, uh, it, this is a, a, a yeah. You were right. There's no way I can answer the question because of the way books were produced in the Middle Ages. Women, the women wouldn't necessarily have selected the the books themselves. So it would be very hard to say women preferred to copy these types of titles uh, and men preferred the others because monastic libraries were quite lim- limited. I mean, not not really, but they were they were not as big as our libraries now, obviously. And they would have had a set number of texts, like like I said before, like St. Gregory, St. Uh, St. Ambrose, uh, and liturgical books that they would have produced because they, they were the basics and they had to have them. Uh, so there's really no sort of at least in my period, by the later Middle Ages, you could certainly look uh, at the kinds of things that women were producing, and they had more agency and choice of texts at that point. Okay, Allison, I'm going to ask the question I thought Brett was going to ask, <laughs> which is, um, can we look at the, the, the manuscripts that we know or, or can make good assumptions were produced by women um, can we look at the scripts or other areas of paratext that might be involved that would help us pick out um, sort of identifying trends that you might be able then to link to other manuscripts and and say, you know, yeah, this was probably created by a uh, by by a woman as well. Is it possible to do that, or is there just too much uniformity, too much standardization. Too much, you know, absolutely impossible to do. You know, there there was a, a catalog I worked with, uh, had been two, uh, the community had produced two really distinct bodies of manuscripts to collections, uh, and the argument was one was by the women and one was by the men. And the cataloger argued that you could see the sort of the weak hand of the woman and the men had a stronger, it's nonsense. Um, they're trying to write like everybody else. Uniformity, you know, was the goal. And so there's no, there are no little hearts above the eyes. I wish they'd be easier to find that way. 
Um, but you have to, you just have to have someone who identifies herself, identify the characteristics of her hand, and find her working in other manuscripts. But sure. there's nothing female about her hand, per se, once you find her. Brett. So, looking f- into the future, because new techniques are being discovered all the time, and you've, you've talked mm-hmm. about writers putting the, uh, the pin in their mouths. How right. thrilled would you be if there was some way to analyze, you know, the, the saliva mixed into the ink? And, oh, and finally, so very <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I first of all, manuscript libraries don't take kindly to you scraping at their manuscripts. So <laughs> even if we could pick up DNA and saliva in paint, um, no one's going to let us do that. You know, I had a team of uh, researchers who were visiting a, manus- a library in Germany a little while ago, a new project that's uh, not really, it's not, not public yet, but it, we've been working on it. And they wanted to take a gloved finger and touch the pigment and see if they could, you know, pick up like just the dust of it. And I think they like to almost touch it with a Q-tip. Uh, and I don't think they even bothered to ask for permission. These things, you don't touch, you don't touch the paint. So it would be very, very hard to get a sample uh, and I don't know how much uh, DNA would be saved in that, but that would be thrilling if I could say, oh, B78 copied this manuscript. I would be a happy woman. <laughs> um, what that makes but me... I can't, I, I wish, I wish I thought that were going to happen in my lifetime, but maybe, maybe in, a, in, a, in another one. It, it makes me, Brad, it makes me think of the, the book and the novel, The Name of the, of the Rose, where the... the guy is poised one monk is poisoning the others by putting arsenic or whatever on the the corner page you know because they would lick their thumbs and, and then, touch it and then yeah and then it would and ingest and and that's exactly what it made me think of that that you know god wouldn't it be cool if you could you know clip a little corner off instead so allison my my question in in all of that is is simply are there other ways that we could link up materials perhaps if if not dna uh can we track the the production of particular kinds of pigments or whatever or or that that might give us an indication that some kinds of things were more likely to have been produced um in um in in nunneries or in in the on the women's side of a of an order um is that a a way of a chance of inquiry that you can pursue? Well, it, it would just be anything that's destructive. I mean, you, you, you mentioned like cutting off a corner. Um, there, there was some in the beginning of sort of codicological work that, that engaged quite intense science. Um, they would actually buy manuscripts and, and cut them, take little bits. But if you, um, I don't, I'm having a hard time thinking of any way that we could sort of tie a manuscript to a person from anything sort of left over in the margins. I have a colleague who does really great work on, on sort of mess, sort of the stuff that's stuck in the margins of the manuscripts um, without using any destructive technology. She can look at sort of which pages were the most touched, which were the most used. Um, but to link them to an individual, um, maybe there'll be some new science down the road. I mean, five years ago, I didn't know about dental calculus analysis, um, and that's identified an actual individual who created books. So I don't want to say never, but with the current technology, I can't, I can't see any way. Okay. I wish. All right. Right. <laughs> Rick. 
Uh, I'd like to put it in uh, basically this book production in some kind of uh, frame of reference. Uh, you mentioned in the uh, uh, earlier segment about wealthy monasteries, you know, producing a lot of books, uh, having large libraries. How many books uh, were produced in any given wealthy monastery in a year? It would vary considerably by the size of the monastery. So um, the, ma- the manuscript library that's my very favorite um, is a library in a place called Admont in Austria. Uh, and there are 200, probably 204, maybe a few more 12th century manuscripts that survive from the monastery of Admont. They're still kept uh, on site there. It's an amazing, it's an, one of the biggest medieval monastic libraries that survives intact. Um, and I can see the women who help to produce them work in teams and that they, they, don't, they don't want to have distinctive handwriting because they want to be able to come and go and, and exchange with each other and have that be undetected. So sometimes I can see up to six scribes working uh, at once uh, on a manuscript. Uh, and that, they could copy them faster. Um, but it would take, and I don't remember the statistics, I should remember these things by now, but it takes quite, you know, it can take up to a year to copy the Bible. Uh, so it depends on your number of person hours available uh, and the number of years that you're looking at. But, you know, 204 surviving 12th century manuscripts is, is mind-blowingly large number. Uh, most monastery libraries would have had you know, many, many, many fewer books. Um, so it's really hard to say sort of what the rate of production would be because it depends on, on need uh, and, and person power uh, and resources. You know, I have a great text where there's a, a, a monk at a monastery writing to a nun uh, at a monastery not too far away saying, could you please copy this book for me? Um, and gives her all the instructions, sends her the material, uh, and then she writes back a couple months later, like saying, oh, look, I'm really trying, um, but the light's not good because winter started, and so we put the thing aside. We'll hope to have it by Easter. So something could, a manuscript would take a whole year to produce um, if it was being produced well. Okay. Or you could copy something that you just wanted to use uh, locally uh, and do it much quicker. So again, it's, it's, I want to answer these questions. Sometimes it's hard because we just don't have the statistics. So... What new and interesting developments are there in the field of manuscript studies? So dental calculus was something unexpected that popped up. Um, what's what's mm-hmm. the next big thing that uh, everybody's going to be talking about? Well, there's two big things. One is a parchment-related approach. Um, And I told you about the people who were cutting the little bits out of the manuscript to test the DNA of the sheep. There's a new team uh, of people who have developed a technique for taking just a standard eraser, you know, those Statler erasers, and they erase a little bit onto a blank part of the parchment, and they pick up enough DNA in that to test it. So they can say sort of whether the sheep in the various parts of the manuscript were related. They can detect the kind of animal that was used. A whole group of manuscripts from uh, Cistercian monasteries that they studied were made with seal skin, and we had no idea until they were able to do that DNA analysis. So that's about the parchment. From my perspective, the most exciting thing, and it's actually older technology than the dental calculus analysis, um, but is Raman spectroscopy. So this is taking a laser 
uh, and firing it at the illumination, or you can look at the ink as well. And the laser uh, reflects back with a, a particular scatter pattern, and they can tell you exactly what pigment um, is used to, to produce a particular illumination. So they can say it's lapis lazuli 100%, or it's vermilion um, egg yolk. Uh, I, I, sometimes they can tell you the greens, the yellows. Um, so that's a really exciting way of determining sort of what materials were used in books that were copied by women, ones that we know were copied by women. Um, did they use the best quality uh, materials? Were they writing uh, using lapis lazuli pigment and so on? And that's where my research uh, is going uh, alongside the dental calculus analysis. And I think both of those, the parchment and the, and the Raman spectroscopy, are really exciting and both non-destructive. The laser it sounds terrifying, but it doesn't hurt the manuscript. And hasn't there also been some method uh, found um, where you can see remnants if something was scraped off and erased and the parchment was reused, or am I misremembering? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of old and clunky technology now. Yeah, you're talking about using ultraviolet uh, light to pull up what's been erased. So very often, at least somewhat often, um, they could even wash the parchment and scrape it off uh, and then reuse it. So if you had things that weren't of interest in a monastery, like Aristotle and his logic, you could scrape that off, you could paint it, and then you could put a nice saint's life or a biblical text on top of it. And using ultraviolet light, manuscript scholars can actually read what was erased. Not always, um, but sometimes you can really recover lost text by using an ultraviolet light. I tried to use it on some nun's letters that uh, I worked with uh, back earlier in my career, and it didn't bring up much that I couldn't read with my, you know, with my uh, naked eye. Uh, but in some cases, you can really recover a whole text. So that's that's really super exciting. But maybe 20 years ago, no offense. <laughs> the idea of of uh, scraping Aristotle off just hurts my heart somewhere as a classicist. I know, I know. Thank goodness that the the Jewish and Muslim scholars were copying it and translating it. So when in the 12th century they decided they were interested, they knew who to borrow those texts from. Apropos of where you get texts, they actually could borrow them from their neighbor uh, Jewish and Muslim scholars, and that's how the West kind of recaptured Aristotle's logic. Um, but it, there were actually copies erased, or just not copied. So, yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, we would like to thank our guests for this 481st show. Dr. Allison Beach, professor of medieval history at the University of St. Andrews, who talked to us about her book, Women as Scribes, Book Production and Monastic Reform in the 12th Century Bavaria. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio and on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at soundcloud.com. Just put KALA Radio in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at Station KALA, St. Ambrose University.